accident or injury, call Jacob and Ronnie. Call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a loved one is injured in any kind of accident, please don't wait. Call Jacob immediately for a free consultation. That's right, free. When an accident happens, it can turn your world upside down. So put the best on your side. Jacob doesn't even get paid unless you win. First name, first thought, first call. Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. After an accident, 24 hours a day, call 844-24-JACOB or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason. Thanks a lot for listening. Appreciate it a lot. Uh, Sue Kalinsky, not here again because of social distancing, but we are working technically to try to fix that as we continue to shelter in place, hoping to get Sue back on the show soon. Uh, Chris Morales, not engineering, but uh, but Juan, uh, my trusted companion, has figured out a way to get us up on Skype, which is fantastic. Um, and this will be, I, by the way, I quit giving uh, numbers and dates and all that stuff because we do one of these and we don't actually know when it's going to come out like this one. Uh, is going to come out sooner than some other ones we've done because this is the uh, conclusion of the trilogy of Better Call Saul interviews. We've already talked to Michael Mando, who plays Nacho Varga. We talked to Tony Dalton, who plays Lalo Salamanca. And today, it's Ray Seahorn, who plays Kim Wexler. Um, And uh, I'm telling you, the show, if you have not watched it, and there are spoilers here, so if you have not watched it, you probably, I hate to do this because uh, we love those downloads and, and when people listen, but you probably shouldn't listen to this. Um, it is such a great show, and I think it's seasons one through three are now on Netflix. Season five is on demand, um, and you know one of the things that I exchange on social media with uh, with people is the question of if it's possible that Breaking Bad comes back around and loops in with Better Call Saul, if it loops back in. And it's an interesting question. Um, you know, Brian Cranston, and, and so people know Brian's a friend of mine, uh, but I don't know the first thing about any of this stuff directly from him at all. Uh, but he did do a scene for Camino Road, which was the uh, mini feature that came out that told the story of what happened to Jesse Pinkman as he went screaming into the night away from Walter White's uh, death. Um, but that was inside the Breaking Bad timeline. It was a scene from the time frame of when Breaking Bad was actually happening. By the way, it has a great line in it, too. A great line. Walter White. He says to Jesse Pinkman, you're really lucky you know that. You didn't have to wait your whole life to do something special. Um, that's such an interesting line uh, from from Walter White in, in the midst of uh, the Breaking Bad storyline. Um, but I tend to think that we're going to start to see more overlap. This is just my guess that we are going to see more overlap, but we're not going to see uh, Walter White 
make an appearance in Better Call Saul season six. And by the way, sadly, um, and there are many worse things, obviously, about the COVID-19 crisis. You know, terrible people are dying. Um, everybody's uh, locked up in their homes, all that stuff. Uh, but the other uh, one of the byproducts is that there's no production going on right now uh, in Hollywood. Nobody's doing anything uh, and probably won't be for a while. And so who knows when we'll actually get to see a season six. It could be could be two years till we get to season six. We may all be binge watching season five again to catch up uh, two years from now uh, when the show finally comes out. But I think we will see Saul in his relationship with the Salamancas and Gus Fring. Uh, I think we'll see uh, Jimmy in the future at the Cinnabon where that sort of got lost at the end of the season where he had just been discovered at the mall um, where he'd been working at the Cinnabon. Um, we know Saul survives this first storyline, but what actually happens to Jimmy at the end in the Cinnabon part of the story? And what happens to Kim? Does does she actually survive um, season six of Better Call Saul? She does not make an appearance in Breaking Bad, so you wonder if her number's up once we get to season six. Um the role of Kim Wexler is played by the absolutely amazing Ray Seahorn, uh, who is so good and had such great moments in season five. And she joins me right now. Uh, thanks so much for doing this, Ray. You were phenomenal in season five. Congratulations. Thank you so much for that. So were you a Breaking Bad fan when the show originally got started? Did you jump in early? Did you jump in late? How'd that go? Oh, I was a huge fan. Um, I had seen it twice before um, before I auditioned. I did not watch it when it was um, airing live. I was a binge watcher, and I was a little bit late to the to the party because I do remember texting friends like, "Oh my God, he just let her choke on her own puke," and they were like, "Yeah, yeah, that was months ago. You really need to pull it together." <laughs> By the way, do you do you agree with me that that was the moment that Walter White broke bad was when he let her choke on her own puke? You, I mean, yes, it was a big thing, but what they do so well, Vince Gilligan and 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 then now Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould as well in in um, Air Call Saw is. they are incremental shifts as well. Like nothing is just the one thing that you just jumped off a cliff, but that, that definitely always felt like a line. It was interesting to me reading um, Brian Cranston's um, autobiography that came out, I think last year. It's very, it's very, very good. Um, And he talked about that moment that it originally was written that he turns her on her back to get her to choke on her puke. And that they went back and forth about whether that was a step, too far um, and decided on um, leaving it this, this passive, almost more creepy and eerie um, moment, I feel like, that he's, he just is being passive and not saving her. There's something almost more sinister about him just staring at her and letting her choke. Yeah, I, anyway, I completely agree. Scene. Yeah. So uh, tell me about the audition process. How did, how did you get this role? I've read some stuff about fake scripts and, and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Um, I auditioned for, um, the incredible, uh, Sharon Bialy, Sherry Thomas and Russell Scott, um, 
the Bialy Thomas Casting Company, and the, and they're wonderful. They're so so uh, great, and they cast all of Breaking Bad as well. Um, and they are a big reason why when you watch both of those shows, uh, even the smaller parts are just so so well done, and so and have such interesting casting choices and three dimensional people bringing all sorts of wonderful things to them. Um, as well as Kira Ekai, who does local casting in Albuquerque for us. Um, but I, it's not unusual to do fake sides at all. Um, these days, pretty much with the rise of the internet and people um, leaking things caused uh, a lot of us actors to have, to, we have to sign NDAs to go in. And then even when you go in, these paper sides, it's not that you're not trusted as an actor. It's just that they could be, they could end up somewhere accidentally um, uh, left in your car, or if you're getting emailed sides, they could end up somewhere. And for storytellers like Vincent Peter that absolutely cherish having the audience be so attentive to every detail and really following complex storylines, they would, they're just loathe to spoil it for someone. So we all got fake sides and I auditioned for one scene that was, uh, had nothing, it was not, it was not Kim Wexler at all. I also didn't know who the character was that I was auditioning for. Um, and then I went to the callbacks and that was a different scene that also was not Kim Wexler. And then when I did the screen test, the final studio and network test, which was for Vince and Peter, a number of producers, and as a chemistry test reading with Bob Odekirk as well, then I had um, the real scene, which turned out to be the phone call, the late night phone call scene from, I want it, it's season one, and I want to say it's like two, three, or four when she's asleep in bed and he wakes her up in the middle of the night and wants to ask her questions about the Kettleman case, and she tells him that she can't. Right, right. At at some point during that chemistry test, did you think, oh, oh yeah, no, we we really click? Um, I got along with Bob Odenkirk uh, as soon as we just started chatting. We, we um, it's not that we're extremely similar. It's just that we complement each other and and get each other's rhythms and then see, can feel each other's rhythm, rhythms when we're doing a scene that all fit uh, very well. And, um, and you know, we uh, share some sensibilities about what's funny and what's um, smart in a scene. And so, yeah, we got along from the beginning, but I, by no means was like, Oh, this is a shoe and I'm definitely getting this part now um, because I've, <laughs> I've gotten along with other actors that I've had screen tests for and not gotten the part. So, you know, um, there was a lot of love. There was a lot of other factors, I'm sure. So how surprised are you that there are Better Call Saul nerds like me who hang on every episode and every moment of this series? You know, if I were, I'm, I want to be so careful to not sound um, self-congratulatory or egotistical because I'm in the show. But at the same time, to be honest, I'm more grateful than surprised because even going in starting the show you know when people would ask as a breaking bad fan i was a fan i'm a fan of my show i watch scenes that i'm not in i go to set and watch them um and i'm aware of and have been for a long time at the level of deep storytelling and character development that 
these writers write. Our entire writers' room is a it's a deep bench, and um, so I had that kind of attention to detail with Breaking Bad, and I care about that attention to detail in Better Call Saul. So I'm not I'm not surprised. I'd be an idiot to think like, oh, I bet people don't like that kind of stuff anymore. Like I'm very I'm very grateful that there's still this this um this thirst for this kind of very intelligent storytelling. You can't watch the shows passively. You have to stay forward and think about the details. And I love that they, the, our writers and our directors um, and even performances are directed to, we're not supposed to telegraph everything to the audience. We're not supposed to spoon feed information to the audience because it is assumed they are um, watchful, observant, intelligent, and, will meet us where we're at. And that kind of tacit agreement with the audience is, is one of the things that makes the show magical, but also does cause very avid fans. I think because fans, I felt this way watching Breaking Bad. I never spoke, I never felt spoken down to. I never felt like something was simplified. I never got ahead of where they were going. I felt like I was complicit in the storytelling. And, and I think that's so necessary when you're talking about character development of watching somebody incrementally um dig a hole and <laughs> and like rot away you know did you always want to be an actor even as a little girl mm, i was i didn't understand it to be an option i used to be really embarrassed because when you read these stories i grew up reading um premiere magazine remember premiere oh magazine? i do I sure <laughs> and i loved that um and then later like when i got artsier um bomb magazine which i still love but reading these things where people seem to anybody in the art seem to know that that's always what they wanted to do and they were directing movies on their home movie camera or they were painting at age four and i felt embarrassed that that somehow wasn't how i uh came upon this career but i was in virginia i moved around a lot as a kid but by the time I settled in Virginia and was sort of in my adolescence and um, going into high school years. And then in the, I, I was obsessed with storytelling. I was just obsessed with television and uh, movies and wanting to find a way to um, watch varieties of storytelling that were different than just um, 80s and well, 70s and 80s sitcoms and, and that stuff. I wanted to see, you know, indie stuff. Or At that time, Nick at Night wasn't children's programming. It was old uh, old sitcoms that I would watch Mary Tyler Moore and um, Hazel and stuff like that. <laughs> and I was just and always looking for, like, late-night airings of um, classic movies and... Like, give me, a, give me a couple. About, give, me, give me a couple of those classic movies that, that struck you. Let me try to think. Um, what's strange is I can't remember all the titles because I would sit there and watch them one after another. Um, trying to think. And I love foreign films too. Uh, oh, wait, that, that would be college. I was extremely struck. This was college years. And probably when I was like, I have to do this for a living, I have to do this for a living, was Kieślowski's, um Blue, White, and Red series. Sure, sure. Um just been I liked I liked very depressing stuff, but I also liked <laughs> comedy, you know, Monty Python and stuff. And there was just something about um, what is this thing where you can build a vehicle, and if everybody doing it, the writers, the directors, the performers, 
um, uh, make it sound. Um, and I had, by the way, I had no access to theater. I fell in love with theater in, in college and that was my foray into acting. But, um, I, I kept thinking like, how can some of these tales and people feel believable, even if it's sci-fi, even if it's, um, the crypt, which I also, was that what it was? What was it? Remember that show uh, where it was like scary movies and a Muppet, a pup, some kind of creepy puppet? Was, was it was a creep what was show? Whatever. Was it creep show? Creep show or the crypt? The crypt. Yeah, That's it. Tales from the crypt. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> it didn't matter if it took place on Mars or it was um, supposed to be realism or it was in a foreign language. I understood that some people you will get in the car with them and believe wherever it is that we're going. It doesn't matter like how far fetched it is or um, how complex it is. You will stay with them. And I didn't understand how do you do that? I did not understand that it was a craft. I grew up painting and drawing and I was around painters and drawers all the time. And so I understood that it's not just, it's not just magic that, that a painting is great. And I'm not talking about photorealism. I mean, any kind of painting that affects you, it's not magic. There's a, there's a craft that goes into it. And then, I suppose it's magical, the element of bringing yourself to that craft and, and wedding those things. But I didn't understand that for acting. I just didn't. I thought you had to know someone in entertainment or if you were going to do American television, you clearly needed to be born model beautiful. And I wasn't. Um, or you just were like, I don't even know, lived in Hollywood and they picked some of you to do things. I, other than that, I was like, I think I'd have to move to France and or be in some like Norwegian, very dark, <laughs> silent film. Maybe they'd let me in. Um, so once I got to college, I was going for art and I, and you had to take an elective outside of your major. And so I was like, well, I'll take an acting class. Cause I was, I was always curious about how do you, how do you do what I'm so transfixed by um, on the screen? And by that time on the stage as well. And it was practical handbook, uh, the practical handbook for actors. I think it's called it's, um, the basic teachings of uh, practical aesthetics that was developed at the Atlantic theater company. Um, and it breaks down like what you're actually doing when you're looking at a scene or, or making a character and how you're looking at a script and objectives and obstacles and given circumstance. And I was, I guess some people, their first acting class where you, you know, pretend you're a ball and lay on the ground and talk about your feelings is how they became enchanted. Thank God that wasn't my first acting <laughs> class with Lenny Raybuck at George Mason University. My class was sit down and do your homework. Stop. This is not, this is not, um, this is not an intangible quality of like, hope you're lucky. Cause that's the shit that's scary to me. This yeah. was, Oh really? If I work really hard, um, and I'm not saying that there's nothing else that goes on. It's not just, it's not just math. You're not sitting down and just doing, if you do steps one through 27, you'll, you'll be a good actor. I'm not saying that, but there is a way to tangibly, uh, get there to improve yourself, to, um, to work, to, to, uh, I like applying myself. I understand that part of Kim Wexler and always have, I understand why it would be salvation. Any situation where if you could just work hard enough, you could fix it because that's something you can control. I couldn't control my looks. I couldn't control the access to people or money that I didn't have. Um, but I can stay up two hours later than everybody else and work on my script. I can show up to rehearsal early. I can look at the city paper in DC and audition for 
different um, community theater, non-paying, non-equity shows <laughs> that I don't have any business of doing yet, but I'll get better next time. <laughs> you know, so I fell in love. I fell in love with that, and then then the art part of it. It's the same as painting. Then it comes when you start being able to rely on those tools and walk on stage and realize that now it's just your job to inhabit this person and, um, and remember that every scene is actually about the other person, not you. <laughs> right. Then, then it's, uh, then it, then it started to be somewhere, you know, and the first time the curtain goes up, went up on an audience that actually paid tickets. I thought I was going to throw up. Um, but then I like made into my second line, um, looked up there and you know the house or not the house lights the stage lights make most of the audience dark except for reflections off of glasses and stuff and um i immediately felt so settled in this place of like oh right like i, I built the car now put them in the car and drive them somewhere yeah and it's gonna be great <laughs> yeah so uh, get back to the show a little bit in, in my mind in your mind why did why did kim quit Schweiker and Coakley? Because Kim has very idealistic um, thoughts and had these thoughts about how practicing law was going to be the great equalizer and the way that she could right the wrongs in the world. And um, she needed some, uh, and this is my belief, um, Peter and Vince did not tell me my backstory from the beginning. They do not tell me what my subtext is supposed to be. I supply things. And then when they give me more information in a script, then I add that to my jigsaw puzzle. Um, I never know more than one script ahead of me. Um, I did not know this whole season and how it was going to end. I certainly didn't know that when it started in season one, and I have no idea what's happening next season, (laughs) but I take the pieces. And for me, I all along thought this person is so controlled and even in her economy of language, which to me led me to thinking like, well, maybe you'd be that controlled physically. Maybe if you don't like people to know what you're thinking um, by saying too much, then maybe you don't like people to know what you're thinking with your body language and your facial gestures. And I just got more and more still. And she seems to have an obsessive need to, uh, do the right thing and help the right people. And it kept being borderline um, egomaniacal. This idea that you should get to decide who deserves, is deserving, who, and who wins and who loses, who, who it's okay to con and who it isn't. Those things are fine talking to someone theoretically at a dinner table, but they have no place in law. And that's what I think she became disillusioned with. Um, I think she wanted practicing law to be something that was um, black and white and hoped that it would be the same thing as moral and immoral and legal and illegal. And those things don't match up. And she, so that's not a rudder anymore. It is a wheel that just keeps churning out, um, banks and uh, uh, contract law and things that she doesn't think are really actually helping people. Um, And I had some other, you know, uh, other shades of why I thought she, she should leave them right now. I mean, 
having a big banking firm, having a big banking client, Mesa Verde, which was actually ill-gotten gains because of what Jimmy did to the numbers and letters switcheroo with Chuck, and right. then working and then working at Schweikart and Coakley and having access to all this money and all these people, none of it has brought her what she wanted. So I think for me, it felt like, like she says in the scene, I realized what was important. None of this is, none of this is important. It hasn't really led to any good. And, and Jimmy is explaining that everything he just went through and he's clearly in some kind of PTSD and he definitely could have died. And I was put in danger and he says, wasn't it all worth it because of this sack of money. And I think she's kind of like, wow, that, that was not my takeaway from what just happened. Right. <laughs> well, you've got this great scene then shortly after, after Kim quits with uh, Lalo Salamanca with Tony Dalton. Tell me about shooting that scene where you start out, you know, a, a little bit meek and taken aback and shocked. And then you wind up becoming this tiger going at, uh, at Lalo. Um, we were, we rehearsed it. Thank God. Tom, was able to, uh, Tom Schnell, the writer and director of episode nine, um, came to me and Tony and Bob asking us like if, if we could find any time in our schedules when one of the one or two of the three of us wasn't shooting to rehearse this kind of monster of a scene. Um, because we, we do a lot of takes on the show. We do a lot of angles. We do a lot of coverage, but we also do a lot of takes, but they are, they try very hard to, um, preserve the time to be about exploring the best way to do the scene and playing it 900 different ways. Um, and that means you need to come extremely prepared. Um, we don't add lib, we don't add a single word, uh, or well, or I mean, or, uh, we don't add those things to the scripts. They're beautiful novels, the way they're written. And so we rehearsed knowing that we need to, we need to, and we rehearsed, sorry, with, with Marshall Adams, the DP and, um, our camera ops, Matt Cradle and, uh, Paul Donahue so that they could start getting an idea of blocking so that we could organically find the blocking with Tom and, and, um, Steve Latecki and the lighting teams could all work on a number of things and angles before we get there on the day. And so that Tom and Tony and, Bob and I could all discuss any questions we had and um, kind of wrestle the scene to the ground a little bit so that you know what the monster is. And then when we got there, we were able to use all the time that we had, which is never enough time to play with just the, uh, just the, the nuances, um, you know, and for me, it was just about playing as an actor. You say Meek at the beginning, she's reacting in real time to what would be, shocking, alarming, and um, <laughs> quite difficult to piece together, I think, for for anybody in her position. I have to take just the information she has, and um, as always, as Kim has been through all seasons, being observant and not speaking is often a position of power for her, and I think she had to try to call as much information as she could I mean the beginning beginning to me is what anybody would do like uh okay that guy has a gun um can I get past him how tall is he uh where are the knives in our kitchen drawers um could we jump off this balcony if we had to could we run past him could the two of us take him there's a lot of just like what what, what this isn't good I know this isn't good but 
she then listens to Jimmy and realizes, I already knew he had some secret. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's clearly something he needs to not say so badly that he's, he's willing to lie to this guy. He, he's, he's struggling and I clearly need to help him protect whatever the thing is needs to not come out. It must be that important. Um, she doesn't know what it is, but that is beside the point. And she kicks into, you know, as I was talking about the thing I understand with Kim Wexler, when possible, I actually don't think Kim sits with emotional chaos very well at all. She insists hmm. on trying to make it pragmatic. And so in that moment, she can't call the police either. What are you going to say to the police? Yeah. There's nothing she can do in this moment. So switching it to debate and legal rhetoric uh, and trying to um, work herself out of this problem is the only choice there is. And I talked to Tom about it and I said, I don't think she's sitting, I don't think the first half of the scene she's coming up with this monologue and then she blurts the whole thing out. I think there's no other choice. She's backed against the corner and she starts it. And is. I think she probably was hoping that, that it would only take two sentences and he would just be like, uh, I don't know, back down or it's possible that he would have backhanded her or pulled out a gun. And I also thought about that, that like, she can't be in hysterics. She can't sound like a raving lunatic. This is a very machismo guy that she understands being from the cartel and to just be a screaming, crying lunatic. You see him shush her earlier in the scene. So she already knows what he thinks of her (laughs) input or women probably in general. (laughs) Um, So I think she had to go about it as a uh, boss to boss leader to leader, business person to business person, um, and then lay out this this very sound argument in a very unsound environment. Yeah. Then you get to the uh, to those final scenes and, you know, sort of under the covers, devising plans to take down Howard. Um, I mean, is it fair to say at that point that Kim has broken bad? I can't put too fine a point on that because it is there's a lot in that scene that's open to interpretation um and that's something that the writers and the directors um do very well so i don't think it's that um concrete uh i do think the the um plot she lays out against howard does not sound like she just thought of it this second (laughs) it sounds like she's been thinking these things before Um, I think there's something quite menacing about how she presents it. And I think there's something menacing about her refusal to allow Jimmy to be sure whether she's joking or not. It's one of those things where like, even if you're joking, that was really creepy. Um, so there's a definitely, there's definitely a shift there, but there's a lot of things at play. I don't, I don't think it's just like, just kidding. Ha ha ha. I'm an axe murderer. I don't think <laughs> right. they're going to, you know, not honor what she was saying or this turn that you saw at all. But I do think there's a lot of things at play, given that you have seen scene after scene, and even in this episode, in that episode, scenes where she really is, it has had it with people telling her who she is. Yep. And what she should and shouldn't do, and what she should and shouldn't feel, and everybody thinking that you know, they're bad for her or Jimmy's bad for you. Or, you know, you're this, this flower that no one should paint or something. I think 
she's had it. And she's also talking to someone who sprang his alter persona on her at the beginning of the season. And she's supposed to just accept that like, Oh, maybe you're this other person as well. So I think there's a part of her that's also throwing back at Jimmy. Like, first of all, you don't know what I'm capable of. Uh, you don't know the whole me. And we've all been in those arguments. You don't know me. Um, but there's also this element of like, listen, we all have masks. We all wear different masks and you, you sprang one on me called Saul Goodman. So, I don't know why you don't think that I don't, I'm not allowed to have other masks as well. I think the real question is which one is the real one? Is this very controlled persona that she puts on the thing that has been covering for this, these other sides of her or is it that's who she is? And now this, this, this different um, person who's sort of eroded more morally and quite a bit more menacing has come out of what she's been through. Um, I don't know the definitive answers to that question. I actually, I actually think it's probably much more complex. I think it has to do with uh, all of the all of the masks that that we all wear, and I think they're very purposely raising the question of who are we really? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, listen, it is really fun uh, getting to talk to you. Uh, season five of Better Call Saul is fantastic. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to wait a little time for uh, for season six, but we will be uh, we will be geared up for it and ready to go. Uh, Ray, thanks a lot for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for all the kind things you say about the show and my performance. You're welcome. You're welcome. Much deserved. And there you have it. The delightful and unbelievably talented. Ray Seahorn, uh, who uh, her chemistry with uh, with Bob Odenkirk, uh, Jimmy McGill and Kim Wexler uh, is really the heart of Better Call Saul. Uh, so uh, thank, that concludes the uh, the Better Call Saul trilogy. We got your Michael Mando. We got your Tony Dalton. We got your Ray Seahorn uh, and we got your your wrap up for season five. And we look forward to whenever we get it. Uh, season six. Um, hey, want to thank you guys for listening. Um, don't forget you can subscribe, rate, and review. We always appreciate that. Uh, coming up, I can let you know some of the uh, guests that we've got. Um, Barry Sonnenfeld is going to join us coming up. Uh, he is the uh, director of movies like Adam's Family and Men in Black and Get Shorty. And uh, he was uh, the DP for the Cone Brothers and stuff like Raising Arizona and Blood Simple. Uh, we will be joined by Hawk Koch, uh, who uh, is the producer of movies like Heaven Can Wait and Primal Fear, went on to be the president of the Motion Picture Academy. Suzanne Summers with all kinds of uh, anti-aging stuff. Uh, she's written 29 books, including uh, one about anti-aging that we'll get into and, and what would Chrissy from Three's Company do during a quarantine. Uh, and... Deepak Chopra is going to join us on an upcoming Culture Pop podcast, too, which I'm really, really excited about. So thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it a lot, and we will see you next time. Be sure to subscribe and review. We'll see you next week for an all-new episode of Culture Pop.